Now, if we are honest, I think we are all tempted at some point to think that God receives us either reluctantly or that he merely tolerates us. We may have lofty thoughts of God, and especially in the Reformed tradition, of God's otherness, his majesty, his self-sufficiency. These attributes often spur our worship. But just think about how often our attitudes betray simple gospel truths like God loves you. I think that the passage before us today helps reorient our hearts to this simple gospel truth by proving that God rejoices to save sinners. Now if we look at the passage, Jesus employs three parables to answer the reproach of the Pharisees. The parables each resound with the same response. He's conveying one truth, that God rejoices to receive sinners. But while Jesus aims at conveying this truth and this truth only, he does so by appealing to various dimensions of our fallen condition, namely our ignorance, our helplessness, and our willful rebellion. Hopefully as we labor through this text, we'll see just how Jesus paints a real picture of our sinfulness in order to prove the great depth of his love for sinners. Now, looking at the first few verses, we see Jesus begins his tactful and gentle response to the Pharisees with a rhetorical question. He doesn't begin his response as in a previous chapter by telling the Pharisees and rebuking them by saying, you neglect the love of God. No, he uses language that suggests that he's gently trying to win them over by appealing to the obvious. What man of you, he asks, to divert their attention to the common course of action that one would take towards losing a sheep. It's as though he asks, look, have you concern for your sheep, the sheep you have at home? If one of them were lost, if your sheep latch had come off and one of them wandered, would you not go after them? How much more then should somebody go after these people who you acknowledge are outside of the kingdom of God? How much more do they need to be recovered? If you acknowledge that they are outside of the kingdom, should they not be saved? Just as a shepherd is motivated to seek after lost sheep, even more so, Christ desires to save sinners. But Jesus' answer doesn't stop there. He doesn't end his reply to the Pharisee by merely arguing that a person should seek to recover their lost property. No, the scandalous thing we see here is that Jesus is not only justifying his interactions with tax collectors and sinners, but that he's saying that he rejoices to receive them. This may have been more palatable if we were speaking about some orphan boy who had lost his parents in some tragic accident. But that's not what we hear. The Pharisees are hearing Jesus speak of tax collectors and sinners in a manner that goes far beyond mere tolerance of them. Tax collectors were viewed as dishonest, greedy individuals who supported the subjugation of their own people. To the Pharisees, the Messiah was coming to destroy these people, not to receive them. And these sinners, the sinners were people who occupied questionable occupations. And as John Piper said, people who no respectable Jew would have anything to do with. Now, the imagery of the sheep is used to represent sinners between verse 3 and 4, and it affirms precisely the idea the Pharisees had of these people. I think Tim Chaley's is bang on in his article, 
where he answers the question, why sheep? He explains because they're dumb, directionless, and defenseless. I think the scripture gives us sufficient reason to conclude that Jesus employs this word picture to further reinforce the idea that sinners are ignorant and insensible people. They go from one patch of grass to another, mindlessly wandering and trying to appease the appetite that they have. Similarly, left to ourselves, we follow our own appetite, indulging in sin, blindly ignorant of the danger before us, namely God's wrath. But Jesus doesn't leave us blindly wondering. In verses 4 to 6, we see that Jesus shows light, throws light on the love of God he has for sinners by, say, by clearly demonstrating that he initiates the pursuit of them. God does not stand aloof and indifferent like the God of the deists, merely waiting for sinners to come to their senses. He doesn't stand there looking down at them, indifferent towards their condition. No, the word picture of the lost sheep and the good shepherd, and the shepherd, sorry, proves to us the exact opposite. Sinners are compared to these foolish and defenseless creatures to focus our attention on how desperately Christ recognizes the need to save sinners. We must remember that Jesus isn't here trying to prove to the Pharisees how good and useful these people are. That, that isn't the case. The shocking thing happening within the context is that Jesus is saying these people who are blind towards God's law, these people who mindlessly go about doing that which is against God's teaching, he makes the first steps toward to embrace. But what should also be at the forefront of our minds is that Christ stands here as the offended party. He isn't some guy that has just lost property. He is truly God who is angry at every infraction against his law. And yet though his revulsion burns against our sin, he makes the first steps to relieve our distress. And indeed, the expression of his anger. It is because Christ enjoys this restored fellowship, that he enjoys the pursuit of sinners, that he tries and seeks to reconcile them. It is because of the great gladness he has when we are brought back into relationship with him that he pursues sinners, that he initiates this pursuit. Now, we should also take note of how Jesus describes the joy of the shepherd who is reunited with the lost sheep. In verse 5, we see Christ describing the shepherd as laying the sheep on his shoulders, rejoicing. He places the animal on his shoulders, maybe to further reassure it, to further calm it, as it has spent some time in the wilderness, defenseless and frightened. Or perhaps Jesus gives us these words just to give us a sense of how intimate the shepherd is with his sheep. He rescues them and tenderly envelops them with his love. It is because of the preciousness of the sheep towards him, to him, that drives him close to sinners. But much to the horror of the Pharisees and scribes, Jesus goes on to say that he boasts to others about saving these sheep. This isn't some private affair. 
it isn't like that bad side of family that you don't want anyone to know about. It isn't that room that you don't want your uh, guests to go into. That isn't the case. Jesus is speaking as sinners of sinners, as people that he boasts to people about rescuing. People that he enjoys the companies of so much that he tells others about it. All of heaven corrals with Christ when a sinner is found. Jesus goes on further to prove the great measure of joy that he has when sinners are reunited with him by impressing upon our minds the manner in which he labors to retrieve the loss. To prove this to the hearers in the crowd, he says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? In this part of the passage, I don't think that we should be tempted to think that Jesus is merely introducing a superficial variation to what went before. What I mean is that we should avoid the idea that Jesus is recasting the parable of the lost sheep and introducing different characters or lost items to merely restate precisely what went before. Rather, I think the Holy Spirit is introducing modifications that further dresses the thought or the idea of who we are as sinners and what the nature of our Savior's work is. So how then should we think about the parable? John Gill provides some insight that I think may be helpful to us. Commenting on this verse, he says, the scope and nature, the scope and design, sorry, of them, meaning of each of the parables, are alike being occasioned by the same circumstance. Only the passiveness of a sinner in conversion is here more fully signified. Who can contribute no more to the first act of conversion, which is purely God's work, than a lost piece of silver to its being found? The coin as every sinner lies dormant, unable to prepare or position itself to be more easily found. This is the state of every human being since Adam. All of humanity, outside of the gracious operation of God, lies bound to sin. Terminology such as being a slave to sin is often casually t- tossed around, but we should really think about what this means. It sheds, lights on the, it sheds light on the hopelessness of our estate. If we were left to ourselves, all we would do is sin. That would be the entirety of our lives. All it would be in substance and in sum would be sin. It should then go without saying that sinners need a savior because they can't save themselves. It isn't as though we are extending our hand allowing for Christ to grab it. It isn't as though we meet Christ halfway. He's the one that is putting in all of the work. This is precisely why Jesus typifies himself as a woman busying himself seeking for the lost. Commentators widely speculate on the precise reason Jesus employs ten coins, but I think most of them agree that Jesus makes use of the woman having ten silver coins or ten drachmas in the Greek to make more clear to the hearers the relative poverty of the woman. 
With this poverty in mind, I think we should get a sense of just how feverishly she would have searched for this lost coin. The idea being trying that is being conveyed here isn't that the quality of her life may have been marginally affected. It isn't as though she lost a $100 bill and may have to skip that event next week. No, the idea we should get here or the sense we should get here is the very sustenance of her life depended on her finding this coin. The woman leaves no mat unturned or no cheer unmoved but sweeps the entire house searching for the coin. And similarly, Jesus seeks feverishly for the lost. It is not because he needs to fulfill or satisfy some deep longing or lack within himself. No, that's not the case. It is because of the preciousness of the sinners to him and their utter inability to do anything to help themselves that Jesus feverishly looks for these sinners. This is the truth I think the Pharisees so sorely abhorred, that Christ would condescend to speak of, of rescuing sinners in such a way that he would actually extend effort in doing so. It, it wasn't like the Pharisees giving them a revised copy of the law and telling them, well, here you go, this is what you have to do. Christ actually labors in order to receive, in order to retrieve these lost coins or sinners. Just think about it, brethren. 33 years of perfect law keeping. We struggle in order to keep one. 33 years of perfect law keeping. He went from tongue to tongue, revealing God's salvific plan through prophecy, receiving the scorn of men, the discomfort of hunger. The exhaustion that accompanies fatigue, all for you. Such is the nature of his labor. Such is the tireless pursuit that he has. 33 years actively working in order to reconcile sinners. I know oftentimes, especially around Easter, the nature of God's active obedience may become lost upon us because of the wonder of the atonement. But think about it. The atonement would actually mean nothing for you if Christ did not work for 33 years to be righteous. If it was that in his 33 years of righteousness, he did not accumulate that righteousness to impute to you and to me, his death would actually mean nothing. So to briefly recap, I think these two parables highlight different causes for man's departure from God. The first parable focuses our attention on the ignorance or insensibility of sinners by comparing them to lost sheep. The second one reveals our passiveness or deadness or the deadness of a sinner who can do nothing but be found. Jesus therefore helps us, I think, to have an even more complete picture of sinners than the Pharisees have. But within both of these parables, he strives to prove just how much he does in order to reconcile us to himself. In doing so, he convinces us that it is more than just fitting that he would redeem sinners as a Messiah. But he enjoys pursuing sinners and therefore he initiates the pursuit of them and he labors to reconcile them. Now you would think that the first two parables were sufficient to guide or inform the hearers about their fallen condition and the great joy Christ has 
and receiving sinners. But in the parable of the prodigal son, I think Jesus means to display just how grotesque our sin is by giving us a sense of just how willful, just how deliberate, just how intentional it is. He begins the parable by saying, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his portion between them. Lest we become confused that this is a picture of the American dream where a well-established parent sends their child along to live a very prosperous life and productive in society, we should consider the context. Within the Jewish time, it was considered highly improper, and I should use stronger language and say highly disrespectful, almost like spitting in your father's face, to request the inheritance prior to the death of your parents. So this hasty move is not portrayed here as one of virtue. It isn't that he was leaving in order to do something virtuous. And from the context that follows below, we should see that the very reason the younger son makes this request is so he can sow his wild oats in some far-off country where his father would not have any hearing of it. The son, therefore, does not display any love or commitment to the father. He does not honor him. But with self-will defiance, he seeks to spend his strength and affections on the things that do not profit but only bring misery. I think Alexander McLaren, a reformer, gives an apt hyperbole on this passage. He says, and this is no parable. This is a picture. The other two were parabolical representations. This is the thing itself. For carelessness of the bonds that knit a heart to God, hardness of an unresponsive heart unmelted by its benefits, indifference to the blessedness of living by a father's side and beneath his eye, an uprising of a desire of independence and the impatience of control, the exercise of self-will are causes of loss. This is the root of our condition. The root of our ignorance that leads to wandering from the shepherd, the center of our unresponsiveness to change our condition, is our fixed rebellion against God. Sinners are ignorant not because they don't know about the law of God. Sinners are ignorant because they don't want to do the law of God. We are blinded by the hardness of our hearts. Jesus, therefore, in this passage, does not leave any pity or sorrow for sinners in this part of the passage, I should say. Perhaps you may have felt some sympathy when you heard about the insensible sheep wandering, and you're like, oh, what a cute sheep, go and get it. Or maybe when he describes the helplessness of a sinner, you may think, oh, well, why not help him, you know, like if he is some sort of paraplegic. But Jesus endeavors to make clear just how grotesque our sin is by pointing to to the deliberateness of it. The parable resounds with language that makes those around him cry out, condemn this man. And condemnation indeed all sinners are deserving of. Having broken God's law deliberately, But after the son has endured the hardship of his foolish ways, Jesus again focuses our attention on the primary 
on the primary character in this short part of the passage. We must remember from the context that the sinfulness of the son is actually quite subordinate to the message. The main character within the prodigal son is the father, or more precisely, how the father responds to the lost son by blessing him bountifully. Can you imagine the scene? What it's like for the son, having wasted half of everything the father had, going back to the father, his feet moving with the weight of his guilt, his mind racing to form the correct words in order to show his penitence, the correct tone, him visualizing perhaps his father's scorn. But what do we see in the passage? The father sees him faintly on the distance and he rushes towards him oozing with gladness not trying to wound him not trying to reproach him further for his foolish actions but with gladness embracing him before he can utter a word the father kisses the child even the son's rehearsed speech seems to be drowned out by his father's call for celebration Do we not see the lengths that Christ is trying to go through in order to show the tenderness of his affection, his mercy that he bestows upon sinners? More than that, after squandering all of these goods, the father desires to bless the son as though he had never left. The haggardly clothes which he possessed are not replaced with hand-me-downs. The father calls for the best robes, the best robes, sorry, And he further dignifies the son by calling for a ring to be placed on his hand. The son who had wasted half of his father's goods recklessly, the father without restraint, tries to bring even more out of his storeroom to bless. In a similar way, does not God give us riches for the rags we had when we were in the world? Do we not receive the abundance of life, whether it be through the family of God are the rich inheritance of doctrine which is passed down throughout the ages. C.S. Lewis had a really apt quote about the reward we receive in heaven. He says, speaking, speaking of the reward, he says, when we get to heaven, it is as though we will be burdened with the weight and glory of God. And what does and he answers that by saying, What is the weight and glory of God? Hearing at the end of the day, thou good and faithful servant, well done. That that the weight and glory that is received when we enter to the presence of God and receive the reward that is laid up in heaven for us is part of the blessing that we will inherit. Now The bounty that is bestowed upon the sinner causes the elder brother to become jealous. The parable begins in verses 1 and 2 with the grumbling of the Pharisees and we kind of come full circle with the elder brother representing the Pharisees. So so much disdain was shown for the father's actions that the elder brother refused to go inside. It's almost as though there's a role reversal. Previously, the younger son was aloof and away from the father. And now it seems as though the elder brother had taken his place. 
we should therefore see just how deceitful sin is and how it manifests itself in different ways. The self-righteousness of the Pharisees relative to the self-indulgence of sinners who just go mindlessly engaging in sin. But again, our attention is focused on what the Father does. What does the Father do? He goes out to entreat him to come in. He doesn't leave him there on the outside grumbling. He goes trying to win over this elder brother. Christ is not partial when it comes to sin. Christ doesn't look at one type of sin and say, well, I can't deal with that. Christ encompasses and embraces all sinners. And he calls all of us to repent and believe. The parables, I think, therefore should fuel the repentance of those who have not yet trusted in Christ. Do you have thoughts that perhaps your vile estate will be met with God's displeasure? Look at the parable. Look and see just how Christ embraces these sinners. Look and see the manner of his embracing. He rejoices to embrace them. He received them without condition. All that is left to the sinner to do is trust in his sin atoning death that he has given his righteousness for your sake in order to be saved by trusting that you can do nothing to earn his favor but solely lean upon the righteousness that he offers and receive forgiveness through his blood you will be saved don't let another moment pass but receive the forgiveness that Christ offers Saints, you who are already trusting in Christ, this passage is such a helpful reminder that we are sinners, but we are held fast by God. As A.W. Pink argues, our Lord has many weak children in his family, many dull pupils in his school, many raw soldiers in his army, many lame sheep in his flock, yet he bears with them all and cast none away. We are the rescued sheep. We are the recovered coin. We are the recovered we are the reconciled son. Christ rejoices to save us and will not let us go. I trust that as we look through this passage and as we have heard that we will rejoice with the savior who expresses his gladness by initiating the pursuit of sinners by working tirelessly to redeem them and by blessing them out of the fullness of his bounty.